Hi there and welcome to the December edition of Cinetopia and it's hard to believe a whole year's gone by since uh, January but there they are, it's almost uh, Christmas I won't say ho ho ho, oh blast, I just did <laughs> sorry about that um, and we'll be looking back at um, the last year in film and, and beyond and picking some of our favourite films of the last decade um, so I hope you're looking forward to the festive season and the holidays and we'll be finding out what the others have been doing Jim, how's your uh, what have you been up to lately and how's your year been? Uh, so I was in... America for Thanksgiving. Uh, my wife is American, so we spent it with some of her her family. So I've eaten quite a lot of turkey, even ahead of Christmas. Um, whether that's a good idea for my diet, I don't mm. know, but very enjoyable all the same. While I was there, um, managed to see a few films that are not out in the UK for a while. Some of which we will review on the show early next year. Uh, things like Lighthouse, Parasite. Uh, and also a couple of the also some of the films that we're going to review on the show today uh, Jojo Rabbit which Amanda and I have, have both seen we'll be talking about that so basically I loaded up on films <laughs> sounds great so well, lucky you and I hope that was pleasant Thanksgiving and uh, Luca so what have you been up to uh, dreading the start of the new decade when uh, AI takes over and Brexit still doesn't happen huh. um, but no I've been on the freelance photo circuit uh, and I'm just um, sort of finishing Cinetopia's blog about our favourite films of the year. Favourite uh, films of the year, we're looking yes. forward to that. Whereas we will be discussing uh, our favourite sort of films of the last decade yeah. uh, in this podcast. Great, thanks. Amanda, you're looking um, radiant and tanned from uh, uh, an overseas trip, I presume. Yeah, to sunny Florida. Um, and I got to spend a little bit of time in the sun, finally. Um, so, yeah, it was very good. And um, at like Jim, uh, I um, had a lot of turkey and a lot of turkey leftovers and all that good stuff. Um, and then I quickly came back to Nottingham and uh, attended the This Way Up um, uh, festival, which is a festival for um, film exhibitors across the UK. Um, I'm on the development forum this year of it, and um, it was really, really fascinating. I think we're going to talk a little bit about um, just a couple things about lists and, and canon and, and whatnot. Uh, the, there was a lot of um, talk about um, resilience and the, you know, resilience and sustainability in, in the world of cinema um, exhibition, which, you know, right now is being disrupted by many, many, many things as you know um, and also just um, this idea of um, which you know I'm quite passionate about more than just a cinema what you know how can a cinema space be some something how can you take it out of the cinema space how can you bring ev cinema events uh, and that's one of the things I feel like Cinetopia tries to do at this stage but in, its, in, in the future it gave me a lot of thoughts about this idea of a hub and how a cinema can be so much more for filmmakers and also up and coming filmmakers and, and whatnot so I was really really inspired and then came back here and here I am well, welcome back. It's nice to have you along. Um, great. Well, thanks for sharing that with us, Amanda, and um, we look forward to hearing more about the Hub idea and uh, future plans, I dare say, in, in coming episodes. So, 2019, we've had uh, quite a, it's fair to say, an extremely busy year at the Edinburgh Short Film Festival, which uh, concluded on the 10th of November at the ECA, and it was a great, great experience. We had a, a ball, really busy, and, and very much looking forward to planning uh, next year, which will be the 10th anniversary. Um, so that was fun. Um, just pretty much recovering from that really the last few weeks. Uh, it was quite exhausting, but I think I've put on a bit of weight, so that's good. Um, so, yeah, we'll see what the rest of them have been up to. I'll uh, start with Jim, your year. How do you think it's gone? Uh, I mean, pretty well. A lot of good cinema, a lot of bad cinema, a lot of in-between cinema, <laughs> a lot of cinema. Um, so I did I, a few things I've enjoyed doing this year. First of all, the show, actually. Uh, you know, I mean, this marks the, the 12th 
the 12th show since uh, you guys relaunched it uh, and I've had enormous fun doing that in particular because I can just waffle on at length and not actually have to write something <laughs> and spell check it and grammar check it and everything I can just just uh, discuss away uh, I think one thing that stood out for me this year and it, it's kind of relevant in the, the films that we're going to be reviewing the show is actually the way that this um, the streaming versus theatrical distribution debate is kicked up um, you know we spoke about on the very first show I did with you all we spoke about it in the context of Roma and some Oscars predictions it's really gone up a notch uh, mm -hmm. this past year and I think in the coming months it's really going to come home with uh, you know Marriage Story which we're reviewing on the show The Irishman which we're reviewing on the show they are Netflix releases they're going to be awards contenders I think there's going to be so much more discussion around this and this debate is nowhere near uh, reached its peak uh, I think it's basically starting and you're going to see a lot of We've seen the start of them. There's going to be a lot of fundamental shifts in the way films are viewed, consumed, and distributed. Um, so it, it maybe seems odd to say it as a highlight, but I think it, it's there's a lot of really interesting discussions that come out of it, and I think there's a lot of films this year that have shown that. Um, beyond that, I've been to many film festivals, Edinburgh Short Film Festival, Glasgow, Edinburgh, Cambridge... Uh, seen some wonderful cinema. Uh, I think it's. I, I actually think it's been a really good year for film, uh, and I think you can tell that from. So Luca will be putting up a blog post on the best uh, one, like our kind of favourite films of the year, and I think with the range of films people have chosen there, you see. I think it's been a. I think it's been a very very good year. Um, you know, a lot of notable stuff has happened. We've got a new highest grossing film of all time, of course, for you know whatever you think of it or whether you like it or not there's a new one so it's been a very eventful year for for film and i think it's been quite mm -hmm. a good one really yeah great so look at yeah how's I, would, you been? I, I would agree well it's been a roller coaster paul i'll, I'll be honest with you um <laughs> but um i would agree as well strong. it's like I, I i this is i think my fourth or fifth time doing the show but like i really enjoyed it and um rest assured to the audience the argument over joker between me and Jim still goes on. <laughs> Is that not finished yet? It's still going on? Oh, yes. No, as far as I'm concerned, it's done. But Luca keeps, <laughs> Luca keeps poking the bear. Uh, um, <laughs> well, somebody's got to quit, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, it did make a billion, I'm just saying. Um, <laughs> no, uh, I, I would say as well, like for me, uh, particularly with Cinetopia as a whole, like the highlight was um, uh, Cinema on the Shore that we did in April. Mm -hmm. um, as far as like our events goes, that was really sort of a watermark for us. You can say but, watermark, uh, yeah, unironically. Jesus Christ, that, I mean, well, look, but like, I'm glad it rained because it, it, it taught us that, you know, problem solving, like, you know, we, we got through in the end, you know, we, uh, yeah, you know, absolutely. it was there. And, and there was a great turnout and a good response yeah. as well. Um, and also, um, I mean, it was great, but uh, I did cry again. At cinema parties, so, um, oh, right. okay. luckily I was in a corner by, by myself, yeah. so I could wow. have that time to me. Yeah. Um, um, I thought you were just trying to keep your pizza dry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, no, it was the rain that oh, was on well. my face. It was yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, it, it's been a roller coaster of a year, um, but you know, uh, I felt alive even in the worst parts of it. Wow. <laughs> 
That's great. It's nice to feel alive, isn't it? And Amanda, your year, how do you think and what's the verdict? Yeah, I think um, I, I learned a lot. Um, that was It was quite an intense year. I, I, I don't even think we expected to do as many. Um, and it was really nice that you mentioned that, Luca. I think Cinema on the Shore was um, one of our highlights. It was incredibly, and one of our, you know, one of our best problem-solving moments and one of the times when I was probably the most tired I've ever been in my life <laughs> afterwards. But... You know, we started these networking events and um, we started to get to meet people within this film community and to see how vast it is. And we created a masterclass um, which talked about post-production with Ali Murray and Stephen Horn and Naomi Spiro. We worked with so many different people. We created this podcast and I think um, on, on EHFM and worked with them. I think it's really exciting. And then we did the Scalarama craziness, which we ran five or six events all in like one month and worked with um, Andy Dannett and Serena Scatenni and, and all these other independent exhibitors. And then, of course, the Edinburgh Short Film Festival, which is always a highlight for me. So I, I just, I'm just impressed that I went to so much film events. I ran so many film events and uh, I might might um you know run a few less <laughs> next year but um but like uh, we were ambitious and we did it so yeah. so it was very exciting yeah it was it was extremely busy as you say um and yeah quite hard to remember them all yeah i guess there's so many <laughs> yeah but, uh, and yeah. we have one coming up on um friday uh if if this goes up before then um elf on lee theater so another thing like lee theater has been an incredible um we we did this rocky horror picture show with the shadow cast and people were incredibly involved in that and i i'm not the biggest rocky horror picture show fan but i think that was one of my favorite um my, one of my favorite screenings because of how engaged everyone was in in the cinematic process so um very 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 exciting excellent uh, yes that sounds like fun if they brought the rice you know, and uh, et cetera. Uh, Rice Krispies, we made it, so. Yeah. <laughs> Great. What's coming up in uh, 2020 in January? We've got uh, quite a few events, I think, lined up. Um, first of all, I'd like to mention that Edinburgh Shorts are teaming up with Shortcuts Amsterdam, who have an international audience award uh, programme which screens the best Dutch films, best Dutch short films, to audiences uh, pretty much internationally, and they've got partners including the um, Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences and the uh, South Africa Film Festival and so on. So we'll be uh, getting involved in that and screening at the Film House on Wednesday, January the 15th, the best Dutch shorts of the year. Uh, nominee panel includes Rutger Hauer, although I don't think he's coming, but he's very welcome. Um, and you are too, so if you want to yeah. see that, come along uh, Wednesday, the January 15th. Amanda, what's happening with you in January? Well, so we just started a couple of months ago these um, family-friendly, we call them Sunday matinees at Lee Theatre, and they're intergenerational screenings of um, classic cinema. Um, we just did uh, White Christmas and before that Singing in the Rain. So Wizard of Oz is coming um, up in the... Uh, beginning of January, uh, the date is escapes me at this moment. But um, then we'll be collaborating with uh, the uh, wonderful Lethal Eight organization, which is um, they do various amounts of um, artwork um, and art creative projects and creative production across Leith. Have been around for quite some time. Uh, Sing along, Sunshine and Leith at mm. Leith Theatre. So that will be quite interesting mm. with bands and other music. Um, so, um, so can anyone sing along? You can get up on stage and sing yeah, along. Yeah, you it. can, I think. Sorrow. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so there, the, those are the, the ones that we're looking forward to early on. And then, of course, we'll probably 
probably have our networking yeah. well, in January. Well, I think you have your star performer for that <laughs> here in this very studio. Um, so that sounds very exciting. Yeah. Anything else? There's, a, there's the, um, the projection project you'll be working on for uh, Coast and Sea. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, that's um, on. So, as my other hat, um, I am uh, working with Hogmanay on a project called Message from the Skies, and there's going to be some really amazing uh, new uh, letters that have been written for about Scotland in the year of coast and waters, um, with people like K.S. Ben Cole from Young Fathers and Irvin Welsh, and um, all of those things will be announced on the first of January, and it will run across uh, Edinburgh on projected on land. Landmarks across Edinburgh from the first to the twenty-fifth. So check that out. Uh, it's been it's been a lot of work, but it's been really really rewarding. I'm so excited for people to see it. Yeah, I look forward to seeing that. It sounds fantastic. So apart from uh, looking back at some of our favourite films of the last decade, we've also got our monthly review slots. So this this month we're reviewing The Irishman, Marriage Story, and Jojo Rabbit. So we'll be looking at those very shortly. So first up is the aforementioned Irishman, which is <laughs> Scorsese's uh, epic masterpiece about painting houses and interior carpentry. Um, but no, uh, like it's uh, it's his second Netflix film of the year uh, after his Bob Dylan documentary Rolling Thunder Review. Um, based on the book by Charles Brown, I Heard You Paint Houses, um, about Frank Sheeran, who was uh, involved, you know, initially with the well always with the buffalino crime family but then ultimately was the uh the enforcer <coughs> house painter of Jimmy Hoffa um and much like uh Sergio Leone's once upon a time in America it takes Robert De Niro as an old man but now he's actually old um looking back on his life uh in said enforcement uh role uh so Jim let's start with you like what do you think I think it's brilliant um, really, I I went into the you know I'm a big Martin Scorsese fan, particularly the work he's done with uh, Robert De Niro. So, you know, I mean, I don't think it's any necessarily much of a surprise that I I like the film. I'm I'm surprised at how much I liked it. You know, because going into it, I think the two the two headline things that you know about this film going into it are it is three and a half hours long, mm-hmm. and they've made use of the kind of the de-aging tech which is very in, in vogue now those are the things you know going in so you kind of get this idea that it's as paul said it's kind of like one final hurrah on the way to the graveyard <laughs> if you're right so you know because everybody involved everybody is getting on on a bit um i was surprised at how much of his filmography Scorsese blends together here. Mm. Um, you know, so the popular, the popular notion of Scorsese's films are, you know, the gangster-themed ones, or the, you know, the ones that are kind of crime-focused, or the Departed, Goodfellas, Casino, Mean Streets, Taxi Driver, that that sort of thing. But he does have that other aspect to his filmmaking, which is a lot more uh, spiritual, a lot more contemplative, and kind of rooted in. Um, religious thought almost and the most obvious examples of that are probably the film he did before this silence and i think the last temptation of christ is probably the other one that would come to mind for me and i think he's really done a wonderful job of blending the sort of criminal hijinks of some of his most popular films with the deep soul based questions that you will find in his his other work because 
it's not to say that the morality of like some of the things that these gangster characters do hasn't been questioned in his films before. They have. But this one, it really it really takes you into the moral rot that sets in. And this idea of people following a code, right? Because all of these all of these mob based films are, you know, they're very based in ideas of honor and loyalty and all all this sort of stuff. But this film really takes to the nth degree the effect that has on someone across decades. Um, you know, in other films, it, 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 even other films of his, it's dealt with. It absolutely is. But here, it is really it it, it sinks in, um, and I think that's for me part of the reason I did not feel the length. Um, well, I would agree. I would the for me the the argument. I mean, I've seen you write about this already. Thelma Schoonmaker's editing here is amazing but it's not just individual scenes and shots it is the fact that if you let if you go for the whole three and a half hour mark you feel everything building up to that last 30 minutes because of the way the film is structured um it is a even though it's the most contemplative as you said and melancholic part of the film the last 30 minutes is a powerhouse based on every, the brickwork of everything before. I'm sorry, I keep making these housing um, <laughs> like, references, but yeah. Really, this film is, is, is superb, and I think the way it blends those things is fantastic. I think this is... I, I, I'm very wary of using the word masterpiece, right? But I would be surprised if I don't think of that this way come the end of the next decade. And... Far from it just being Scorsese's, it is Thelma Shoemaker's. It is paced to perfection, it is edited fantastically, and if she put a single foot wrong in this film, you'd start to feel the length, and I really did not. Paul, what did you think? Yeah, I'll go, I'll go pretty much along with what Jim said. It's probably, for me, one of the, the films of the last, well, last decade, perhaps. It was fantastic. Um, I would say there's a few things. I mean, obviously, the, the de-aging um, technique was quite interesting. Um, <clears throat> I think um, also they re-aged them as well, so it wasn't just de-aging. They made them uh, much older than they currently are. Um, it, was, it worked okay. It didn't really distract from the film. I mean, you didn't really look for it. You didn't really make you feel that you were checking out how good it was. Um, but, you know, the, the, I think that one of the problems, um, there's a few things with the film, and one of them is the fact that although they de-age them at 40, they still move like they're 75. You know, there's a scene where um, De Niro's uh, kicking somebody's head in and it looks like he's stepping over a puddle, you know. So there, there's little elements, like, I mean, you know, apart from that, I think um, the whole thing holds up incredibly well. And as you say, the editing is fantastic. There's a lot of very short scenes which are elaborate setups which are only on screen for 10, 20, 30 seconds. Uh, so an incredible amount of detail and work that's gone into that. You know, I, I agree about the... For me, the de-aging um, didn't work. Um, but everything about the film outside of it was... Like, it made it forgivable. And and I'm, it's cool to see Scorsese not being an old fart and experimenting. The, you know, he had this whole thing where it's like, you know, the, there'd be like 16 different lenses... Um, you know, four different cameras and stuff like that, um, and that like the the, the ILM tech guys would come in and do like a Eucharist procession. That's how the way he described it. Um, and they would go away. It's like okay, we can shoot a film again. So it's like even though you know he still doesn't get the techniques of it, he is experimenting, and it's great to see what like a seventy-six-year-old doing that, and that Netflix is doing that as well. That Netflix is producing that. You know, uh, considering you know other studios did turn him down. Uh, despite the cast and and the and the project, um, yeah, yeah, and for, for me the technical the, like that part of it, the de aging for, for me it pretty much works. Uh, I did, like Paul's spot on, and I, I've written about this the the, the way the, the manner in which it falls down is they still have 
the body language of men in their late 70s. It's just kind of like that that slight hunch, the slight slowness in the movement. And unfortunately, that that scene where he's beating up a greengrocer, unfortunately, that's where it stands out the most. Um, for me, it didn't really take away from it. And, and some of them deal with it better than others. Like, for instance, I actually think Al Pacino deals with it quite well. Um, you know, particularly some of his scenes as kind of, you know, like 50-ish year old uh, Jimmy Hoffa, he, he does quite well, I think. I think his his body language and the way he moves is actually actually a lot better. Um, it's There's so many aspects to this film. Like, I mean, it's also a very funny film, actually. Like, I mean, you know, for something that's dealing with, like, a historical thing, which is actually kind of tragic and is shrouded in mystery and kind of, like, really quite, you know, in some cases, morally repugnant people, um, there's a lot of humour here. Well, I would say, like, for me, there was always a spiritual trilogy between or among Goodfellas, Casino, and Wolf of Wall Street. Because there was a progression of criminality to sort of legitimize cr- criminality. Whereas, like, this, whilst it has the style, stands out because of the self-awareness. There is, and the scene that stands out is when Hoffa is screaming at his other enforcers and De Niro walks out, like, offended. And then Pacino goes out and he's like, no, 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 like, I didn't mean it. Like, you know, take off. He starts taking off his coat. You know, like, two old men sort of, like, bickering at each other. So this is definitely, for me, a film that only a 76-year-old could have made, but, like, the self-awareness, the, the comedy was so... And it's, it's not as violent either mm-hmm. as his, the, those other gangster pictures that he's made, you know? Which is actually interesting, because then when it does have its violent moments... And right. it, it's not it's not gory violence, but it is shocking. I mean, it is shocking mm-hmm. violence, and it's more like, you know, it's like, you know, Robert, Robert De Niro being some sort of, like, you know grey-haired Terminator or something right. like that. It's kind of shocking in, in, in that regard. I, I think one other thing that's interesting about the performances, especially given we've just commented about the fact that there is humour in this, like, you know, that kind of, like, wisecracking that you you know of in mob films. It's done very well. But the thing that I find interesting about it is one character that really doesn't engage in it at all and actually probably plays against type is Joe Pesci. Yeah, uh, and I think it's a wonderful performance from him, and it, like he, his performance spans the same ages as De Niro's. Like we go from when he's, you know, not necessarily a young man, but he's certainly not, you know, he's certainly not old, kind of like pre middle aged, through to kind of like him being very elderly. And I think he, the the consistency of performance he's got there, and the the measured way he approaches that character of uh, is it Russell Buffalino uh, is really superb. And it's kind of against type, because you think of Joe Pesci as the guy in Goodfellas, you know, I'm funny to you, I'm funny to you how, and, you know, my cousin Vinny, and even, like, Home Alone, things like that. And he's done a variety of roles in his career, and not all of them have been in that mode, but I think this is kind of one of the biggest profile ones, where he, he plays against the popular perception of him. I now, think. added to that, much like, well, much like Scorsese's other films, this is a very talk-heavy film, but for me, it's like it's Joe Pesci's Rana Paquin silence that really, um, you know, kind of carries forth what what the film is about, which is euphemisms and um, the effect of violence and sociopathy on other family members. And yeah. Um, yeah, I'm interested to see what you guys think about it, because the other part of the performances is, which there's been a little bit of discussion about, is uh, Anna Paquin's role as um, Frank Sheeran's daughter. What did you two make of that? Because I have my thoughts, and I think it, I think it was very effective. But I'm interested in what you thought. Yeah, I thought she was very good. I mean, um, I mean, you know, very little screen time, and I think I don't think she had more than one or two lines. Uh, beyond that, she's very effective. I mean, it was all in glances and looks to camera, and um, uh, very very strong performance. And I think that did bring out you know the overall theme of regret and uh, reflection and. 
Um, and that there's, it reminded me actually a little bit towards the end of the film. Uh, there's a sequence. Uh, I don't want to spoil it, but there's a sequence where he goes to visit his daughter, uh, and, in a, and she works. She's working in a bank at the time. And it reminded me of the scene in a uh, Johnny Depp film, I think it was Blow, where he's, he's dreaming about his daughter visiting him when he's in prison. And it had that kind of real emotional power about it, a real sadness. Um, so I thought that was extremely effective, uh, and she was, she was absolutely fantastic, I think. Well, I mean, I think cinema's not just about the spoken word. It is about, it is about someone, the way someone looks, not in terms of looks, in terms of th- the emotion that's registered on, on the face. I think well, it's not just Anna Paquin. It's it's also like th- that character is also a little girl, and she's really good. That actress, the, you know, the, the little girl that plays her is um, just someone that is bottling things up, but still maintaining composure as well. But is clearly affected by it. I think uh, like that's that's what that's the counterpoint, and that's Scorsese's. You know, he understands the visual. Um, yeah, and I think there's different categories of performance in the film, and I think Anna Paquin's is the best one that exhibits the what you can do without dialogue, uh, and it really hammers home for me a lot of the themes of the film and the the journey of uh, I mean her character as well, but also the, like the role that plays in the central journey of Frank Sheeran. There are other roles in the film that I think exhibit the same sort of thing. We've already spoken about Joe Pesci. I think like the, the, the amount he does with dialogue-free scenes is very impressive. It's a very small role that Harvey Keitel gets, but he's mm-hmm. in the same category. Like, you know, it's, it, it's more about what is not said and kind of like the, the, the way that things come through on his face rather than in his words. And then you've got the more talkative roles. Like, you know, I mean, Al, Al Pacino... You know, he has his contemplative moments, but generally I would think he he gets a lot of dialogue and a lot of speaking lines, and he does as good a job as you would expect. I mean, I think it's the best thing Al Pacino's been in for decades, quite frankly. Yeah. It's the best performance I've seen him put in. I mean, he's really... it is a very Al Pacino performance. Uh... Well, well, yeah, but it's it, it's the good Al Pacino. <laughs> it, it's the good stereotypical Al Pacino performance. Like, yes, he's very loquacious, and he gets very animated at points, yeah. but it's... It's kind of like that. Like I'm, I, I, I'm, I for one don't really care for scent of a woman, right? That to me it kind of goes the the other the other side of the line in terms of the sort of like an Al Pacino performance, you know, copyright register trademark, right? All that you know what you expect of it. Mm. To me, it feels a little bit more like the slightly more character driven. Um, anger and animation of other roles he's done. I think the test of that as well is particularly when we get closer to uh, Hoffa's disappearance, if if we're going to call it that. Um, He does show when he's still stubborn about his role as union leader and stuff like that, he he touches the right points, you know, in terms of emotion and and subtlety as well. I think you're right. Yeah, I mean, Um, I think the performances are good. Like, you know, I mean, it's made headlines because it's like, you know, Pesci, De Niro... Pacino, right? And I think it's it's it, it it deserves to be noted for bringing them together because more importantly, it's got brilliant performances out of all of them. I mean, mm. you know, because there's other films that like you know De Niro and Pacino have been in together. Like what was it was it a, a, a Righteous few, Kill? Righteous Kill. That was it. You know, it was a load well, of yeah. you know, it was a load of nonsense, right? So, that, like, just getting them together doesn't do it. You need to get a good performance from them. Mm. This film absolutely does that. It absolutely does it. It's the best thing that Pacino has been in decades. I think it's really the best thing that De Niro has been in quite a long time as well. And for that. For that, I'm grateful because those are kind of like two of my favorite on-screen actors. But you know, they've not 
made a lot in recent years that I want to see, but this, it, it's fantastic. I was, it's really I was kind of trepidatious about the film going in because seeing the trailers, I was worried about the way it looked because I only ever saw it on a laptop, the trailers, and it did look a bit like oh, the washed out colour grade of a Netflix film. It did feel a bit televisual, but I, like you, like, uh, you know, we saw it on the big screen. And I mean, th that car going through the car wash is breathtaking. Like, you know, it's a slow. And for me as well, it's, um, on top of the de-aging, I, I like what Scorsese is doing stylistically with them. Um, he started using a lot of slow motion um, like you, you know, you saw it in Wolf of Wall Street when they're taking the quaaludes and stuff like that. But here, there's like the, there's that scene where there's some sort of I can't remember. There's a dem union demonstration. Guy gets shot by Crazy Joe or whatever, and then there's this you know this Caravaggio shots of like slow motion that he's perfected. And of course, the editing helps it. But like um, you know, it's like what De Palma said when he saw Raging Bull. It's like there's always Scorsese like just upping the game, um, and he's still doing it at 76. You know, so. All right, so first up in our reviews, like we said, we're in a little bit of a Netflix theme this month is Marriage Story. And um, it uh, it's currently on Netflix, but, um, you know, premiered in a couple places, I think, around the UK and a, a couple theaters. Um, it also made its debut in New York at the Paris Theater, my favorite theater in New York, at, which had closed down. And it turns out that uh, Netflix has bought a theater in New York, which is which is actually quite funny um, and also sort of ironic because it's called the Paris Theatre and all of France hates Netflix. Um, but <laughs> I, I'm so excited about that in a lot of ways because when I come back to New York, I'll go to my favorite theatre and um, I think it's an interesting conversation we can have at another point. But back to Marriage Story, um, Noah Baumbach uh, wrote and directed this film. It, it stars Scarlett Johansson, Adam Driver, Laura Dern, Alan Alda and Ray Liotta and um, as one can imagine it's about the breakup of a marriage um, with a, you know with a young son um, it starts you know where they're sort of deciding the separation to you know the divorce and the divorce stage and all of the sort of conversations that go around that and you know the pathways that that it happens it's also mostly about bicoastal so there's a very New York and LA sort of centric uh, storyline. Um, of course, I, as I, as everyone I think knows in this room, I'm a big Noah Baumbach fan, and uh, this film really did everything I needed it to do. <laughs> Especially, <laughs> particularly in my life stage right now, I I really loved it. I thought um, the acting, of course, of I think Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver are great actors, but I think it they they were they did such a wonderful job, and that Stephen Sondheim moment was so nice as well. So um, I, I I would like to know. What you guys think yeah i mean I, I i think i pretty much agree um it, it's a very it's got quite a lot going on actually i mean you know it's called marriage story and it follows a, a divorce but there's quite a lot of stuff going on beyond that like there's quite interesting parallels between new york and la from kind of like an american cultural standpoint because basically what happens is so it, it's it's kind of semi-autobiographical right so the one of the main characters, Charlie, who's played by Adam Driver, is basically meant to be kind of a cipher for Noah Baumbach himself. Mm -hmm. And it's really kind of telling the story of his divorce from, is it Jennifer Jason Lee? 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Before he was with Greta Gerwig. Yeah, yeah, I did, yeah, yeah. I'd love, I'd, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when Greta Gerwig watched this film. <laughs> but, um, so it follows that. It follows that that story, and basically. The, the Charlie character is a theatre director, so mm. the Scarlett Johansson uh, character is the lead actress in his play. And she's given up kind of like various Hollywood opportunities to continue to do that. But when the separation comes about, she moves to L.A. to take up opportunities there. And it's kind of a little bit unclear what their future is. And you get this kind of interesting contrast between New York and Los Angeles. So there's that part to it. There is, of course, also the personal story of the two of them. And I think that is rooted very much in the performances. I think it's an excellent pair of performances. I don't think I'm quite as blown away by the film as a whole as, like, certainly I think you seem to be in some other folk are. But it is, it is a real quality piece of work. It's well written. I didn't find it overwrought, which this story really could easily have been. It's mm-hmm. got that kind of quirky naturalism that I suppose you'd think of Bombay for, but it's also very low on whimsy. You know, I mean, you it's not a... When I say it's got a, a quirkiness to it, I don't mean it's a quirky film. It's more... It captures that kind of, like, everyday reverence that you use to get through situations like this, I suppose. So, the performance is good, the script is good, and basically it just all comes together really rather well. Um, I think with different performers it maybe wouldn't have landed quite as much, but it has those performances and it all really comes together quite superbly for me. Yeah, me too. I I liked it too. Um, Even though I'm not, again, as people in this room know, I don't particularly... The, the ones I have seen, not particularly taken by Baumbach, more so by Greta Gerwig's uh, stuff than um, than his. Um, I was kindly surprised by this and how much I liked it. I think like some issues aside, which include like I think like when the film pushes towards humor, like certain jokes, I think just fall flat. Hmm. Um, which ones do you think? I can't remember, but it was like it, I just I just felt. Um, by the time, let, let me put it this way, by the time Alan Alda got into the film, I was like, okay, here we go. This is the human comedic core. This, like, by the time Alan Alda got into the film, I was like, okay, I am sold on this film completely. And then by the time there's that scene where they're just screaming at each other, where Baumach just lets them sort of have their Oscar moment, where mm-hmm. it's like they're competing performances, if, you know, when, you know, Driver falls apart at the end of it. I thought that was really well, well done. Um... There's there's a, even a shot that does directly invoke uh, Bergman's scenes from a marriage. Sure. But this one, I you know at times I was like, oh, this isn't Bergman's scenes from a marriage because you know it's not this hardline, cynical, cold, uh, you know, doctor's view uh, or counselor's view of marriage. Um, but that's not what this film was really trying to be. It was trying to be, I think, something warm. And the cinematography. This is. For me, this is his best-looking film. I think, like, oh no, we'll go oh, talk about some. In the, but in term, in <laughs> terms of like the the thirty-five mil, but like the the choice of cinematography for the subject matter. Yeah. No matter how you know, there's a, there's a line in the film that's I think even taken directly from Kramer versus Kramer, which is like, uh, divorce lawyers see couples at their worst. I think that's the line. Mm-hmm. Um, but this film sees. Through the cinematography, this film sees people at their best, despite the fact that they're at their worst. That they they are still human beings. They're trying to figure this out, no matter how Machiavellian divorce proceedings can get between couples. Sure. Um, and yeah, like the the that sudden musical moment, uh, which like 
whether it's Cold War or Shape of Water, it's like whenever someone like goes on stage to express themselves through song or dance, I'm like, yeah, I'm in. And Adam Driver, give him some vocal training. He's he's a great singer. (laughs) Yeah. You see, the funny thing is, right? Just to just to play devil's advocate, that the, the, that moment didn't actually really do it for me. Like, I I, I fully yeah, accept I'm like in the a minority. Despian, I mean. Oh no, no, Christ, no, no, oh, see, that's no, no. And I am fully willing to accept that, that that's why. But it's just interesting because, like, that that seems to be, you know, without spoiling it, it's basically a moment towards the end of the film, right? And it kind of seems to bring a nice close to charlie's arc if you like and like mm-hmm. where he ends up at the end of the film but i i don't know it's just something about my makeup it didn't really do it for me I, the rest of it i found much better which didn't say i think it's bad it's more just it didn't have the same impact on me i think a lot of the chat around this film and the performances will focus on scarlett johansson and adam driver i think it is worth talking about the, the supporting performances as Absolutely. well yeah it really adds it really adds a lot of color to the film and i think it balances the tone that noah Baumbach is going for quite well because also there's a lot of humor here um now for me not all of it works 100 percent. like i wasn't fully sold on um the wife's family and the mother in yeah. particular, I felt like that had kind of been parachuted in from a different film, to be honest with you. It felt like it was a lot more whimsical than some of the other ones. But now, well, now that you remind me, that's that's the, the, the whole pie sequence where she's meant to serve him with the papers and the sister. There's that whole thing. It's like, why is she carrying a pie? I was like... <laughs> Is this meant to be funny? Okay. Well, no, I mean, I was all right. To be honest, I was all right with that, but it was more just the. the, There was something about the tone of those interactions that just didn't sit right. Because the rest of it is. The rest of it, even when it is ramped up to be a little bit caricaturish, it's all quite naturalistic, right? I mean, it all feels pretty genuine. That didn't to me. But that aside. A lot of the supporting performances really give it that that tone it needs. In particular, the ones that I'm really thinking of here are um, Ray Liotta, Al Nalda, and Laura Dern, who play yeah. basically the various lawyers that both of them interact with. Because the entire point of this process and separation is, oh, we want to do it without lawyers, and then obviously, you it know, becomes it's not, it's not, yeah, it's not a spoiler to say that obviously that completely descends, and that is not the case. But they, those supporting characters, I think, do a lot to set that tone of balancing this kind of heartbreak and personal anguish with humor right because you know just because these things happen doesn't mean there aren't things that are funny things you find humorous and i think that those supporting characters are what balance that tone quite well because and adam driver and scarlett hansen's characters are pretty straight you know, I mean, like, you know, like Adam Driver does quite a good job of reacting incredulously to things, right? That, that it's like he's very underrated in that department. But their characters are overall fairly straight. So the balancing of the tone that I think Bombach wanted to go for is done very well by those supporting characters. And I wouldn't be surprised to see them get a little bit of recognition as this kind of rumbles on. Yeah, I think Laura Dern's character for me was the my favorite. I'm particularly a huge Laura Dern fan, and I think we were talking about this earlier that. Um, it's almost kind of an evolution of if you've seen Big Little Lies, um, what you know, like a similar kind of character. Um, really, really funny. Also, really, you know, like her her ability to kind of. I like that one scene when she's talking to uh, Charlie about you know his work and and uh, <laughs> right and then jumps right back into firing <laughs> the good lawyer the the good lawyer that she is. MacArthur Grant. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, incredible, incredible. Um, also, like, I like I. Would would have liked to see more of him, but Wallace Shaw. 
Sean as well. Mm. He was part of the New York theater group. Mm. It was yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It was, it was particularly funny, but it's like a few more scenes would have been really nice with him. Yeah, no, I think, I think that what you said, Jim, about this New York versus LA thing, I think it's also kind of interesting because I feel like a lot of artists go through that process of deciding, you know, like, and, and it's been funny because over, over the years of living in New York, um, LA was kind of like the evil, you know, like brother or sister to New York. And then I've noticed that a lot of filmmakers, not only because maybe they're moving to LA, but have sort of become kind of interested in moving to LA now that's perhaps become a little bit more hipster or whatnot. Um, so I just, I loved that kind of setting as kind of part of the th- themes of, of deciding as an, as an, as an actor or director or creative, you know, where, where they place themselves and also where they place a relationship that, that is, that takes over your life in a lot of ways. Um, and, and how you can kind of create, you know, how, how there can be competition within a relationship when we're dealing with creatives and artists, but there can also be this loss of self and our ability to create through that as well. So I just thought that was so well articulated in, in, in this story. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think the, the way it portrays that central relationship is is very well done and it's very interesting because I haven't personally. I've not really seen a lot of films that do that well in the sense that they balance that idea of you know you've got this strong central relationship where there is a a single entity that forms out of it, right? But then if that breaks down and people go their separate ways or even if they become frustrated within that unit how do you go about finding a way to reforge your own identity it's like you know who you are but you need to find your way back to it almost and i think for both of those characters i think it does that really really quite well and i think it does it without favoring i i am of the opinion i've seen you know other opinions are available trademark but um I don't think it favors one character over the other. No. I don't think it's I don't think it's equally balanced at all points in the film. Like I don't think it's kind of like doing that juggling act throughout. I think it swings from one back to the other. But I don't think it particularly considers one character to be in the right. And it's more it's portraying the difficulty of navigating this divorce. And I think yeah. it I think that that it does very well um and I think anybody who's been through a breakup will probably be able to relate to at least aspects of that um you know yeah. even even if it's maybe like maybe everything because there's the the kid involved and everything's a little bit kind of like more set in its ways it's maybe you know amplified but i think there's a lot to relate to in that central relationship for sure and i think also this idea of like the expectation of the ideal relation re- the relationship breakup i mean i i started to think about that movie breakup with jennifer aniston and ben <laughs> and, like, and how not good that was and for a while i was like oh that's pretty good you know um but how so true to to these kinds of situations this really catches where you you might have these aspirational ideas on how you want things to happen but emotions and energies take over and um you know life life moving you know locations and practicalities and stuff and it just it just does such a nice way of of combining like you said a little bit of humor that that comes out of that stuff and and also intensity also um I found my like yeah I I completely agree with Jim. I found myself at the beginning, kind of going with Adam Driver. It's like why would you why would you move to L.A. and all this stuff? It's like uh, you know the, the, her reasons were unclear, but like it brilliantly like 
vacillates between the mindset. You're always um, either in Adam Driver's or Scott Johansson's head, um, particularly like the bits where they finally decide like that the lawyers are going to take care of this. Mm-hmm. And you're going, what the hell? Um, and then whether it's like, you know, her taking certain actions against him or him taking actions as per like, you know, finally settling on Ray Liotta as his lawyer, as his hotshot lawyer, that, you know, he's upping his game. Um, so I found that as well, is that you're never, you're not, you actually, by the midpoint of the film, you see that both people are so emotionally crippled, particularly the driver character, and yeah. he's so in the wrong as well. Like, Yeah, but then ultimately he wasn't the one who did the breaking up, correct? Like, so I know, so, I, so there's, there's this really interesting sort of thing to say, well, you would feel for the person in, in one situation who was mm. broken up with, but then you, you can see what Scarlett Johansson's... I, I think one thing that is done very well on the adam driver side not, not that i want to favor one one over the other but there was something about and it, it's just it feels like a particular aspect i only feel of actors of that sort of like generation adam driver seems uniquely placed to do is that kind of like strange combination of arrogance and vulnerability like i think he bound it like that is balanced superbly in this film like at, at times he comes across as just the most arrogant arsehole imaginable but at the same time he still retains that you you still retain a little bit of sympathy and empathy particularly towards the end of the film when you know things escalate basically but like it, the performances are really what make this film i think they wouldn't have as much to work with without the script which obviously comes from from Bombach and you know the way that he approaches the shooting of the film but really it is those central performances and as we've discussed the, the supporting ones that really make the film I think well one of the things I was asked you guys about is you know I, where where you see this and I mean I think you you both have different opinions of Noah Bombach but then you look at this Adam Driver and he's in about I think at least three films if it could be more um, I, I sort of see him in a very similar way that like when Woody Allen would play himself and sort of mm-hmm. articulate or he, near the later part of his career would add some new characters in who would always play the Woody Allen character that Adam Driver is particularly taking on that role in Noah Baumbach as he's growing into his own kind of you know relationship um, social commentary filmmaker of New York. As with much of the, the Woody Allen uh, surrogates, I think uh, Noah Baumbach's been quite kind to himself there as well. <laughs> <laughs> like, his Adam Driver's quite a good-looking guy. He's about really? five inches taller than yeah, him. Yeah. So. <laughs> no, 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 yeah, no, I'm sure it's totally that way, but you can, you can definitely see that about him in general. As I mean, you know, they're... they're but, yeah, no, I, I definitely see that he, he kind of becomes that, you know, with, I think, when we were young or what that film was yeah. um, he he sort of played that role of some sort too, and so I guess Ben Stiller did more for him. But anyway, yeah, he he does really not just because of Kramer versus Kramer. He does remind me of Dustin Hoffman, of mm-hmm. like so if you look at him, Driver, he's playing this, and then in two weeks he's in Star Wars. Uh, before that, it was Dead Don't Die, and then the report. Look at like Dustin Hoffman, he does Tootsie, but then before that he did like Kramer versus Kramer and you know all the presidents men. So um and all like Dustin Hoffman is very short. <laughs> Adam Driver is very tall, yes. But they are, you know, chameleons like in that way and being able to like vacillate between two, you know the you know, the mainstream and the sort of more um Oscar yeah, heavy. You could story. say the same thing for Scarlett Johansson though. I mean yeah. you know, Avengers and whatnot. Yeah, I'd, Adam Driver seems to be on a real run of it right now, though, because, I mean, of course, he did, well, there was a report, which I don't think actually 
seems to have ended up as well regardless as they hope but there's that there's a uh, marriage story there's um the star wars films and then also because like, i didn't think this was going to get a release but just to kind of I suppose finish this section on Adam Driver will have another probably reasonably interesting release in January because the man who killed Don Quixote, mm. uh, Terry Gilliam's film, which was stuck in development and then distribution hell for a very long time, is actually getting a release in uh, towards the end of January in the UK. So Adam Driver's on a real run of like actually really interesting and diverse roles. All from the show from starting those girls and yeah. showgirls. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> unrequited love. Um, all right. Well, that's on Marriage Story. If you didn't think we liked it, I, that would be shocking. Um, we, we very much did. And uh, so if you're a Netflix subscriber, um, maybe check it out. All right, so the next film we are reviewing is uh, Jojo Rabbit, which is coming out on, I think it's January 3rd in the UK. Uh, it might have previews from New Year's Day, but it'll be out at the start of the month. Uh, it's had a festival run. It's directed by Taika Waititi, who is best known for, most recently Thor Ragnarok, I would say, but he's also kind of well regarded for his irreverent comedy, uh, What We Do in the Shadows, uh, Hunt for the Wilder People, and this is an odd one to summarise, I'm not going to lie. It is set in Nazi Germany during the Second World War, and it follows uh, a, young, a young boy, Jojo, who is a member of the Hitler Youth. And he also has an imaginary friend who takes the form of Adolf Hitler. And the imaginary Adolf Hitler is played by Taika Waititi, and we've actually got another Scarlett Johansson performance in this one. She plays Jojo's mother. And basically, the, the setup and the premise is Jojo is quite the little Nazi. Uh, he's very into his role in the, the Hitler Youth. But he finds that his mother is harboring a, uh, a young Jewish girl who's played by Thomason McKenzie, who has done a lot of very interesting stuff. Uh, the thing that I think I saw her most recently in was Leave No Trace, uh, Deborah Granick's really quite superb film from towards the end of 2018. So basically, they strike up a deal whereby, you know, Jojo's going to get in trouble if he knows that she exists and is hiding in their, their walls, basically. And it's basically the, the journey of that central, the, the two children, you know, and obviously there's stuff around the edges to do with um, Nazi Germany, the Gestapo, and various things. Because it's very much pitched as a, a comedy, but it's going for a satirical angle. And that's basically the setup. It's basically Taika Waititi trying to take this very irreverent brand of humour that he has and applying it to a satire of uh, Nazi Germany and that time period. So that's what it's trying to do. Um, I have my thoughts, but Amanda, I'm interested to see what you made of it. You're the other person here who's seen it. Oh, you don't want to give your overall thoughts on what you think? Uh, no, I'll wait. I'll okay. wait. <laughs> I'll well, wait on the I'll wait on the Hitler Youth film. Thank I, you. <laughs> I was I was gonna say um, the past couple months. Um, I, I was I was about to say when when you when you suggested this film. Oh boy, here we go again. Um, you know, <laughs> the Nightingale was very painful, and for me, um, comedies about Nazi Germany um, are some of my least uh, like are, I find very painful sort of to 
to consider. I love World War II films and I love um, watching them, but I also love like critiquing and analyzing ones that I don't. And I think there's two comedies that um, people in this world think are the best. And um, and I hate to, I mean, I, I love to say, love to say that I think are some of the worst I've ever seen. And one is Love Actually. Um, sorry to be the Grinch here, but I think it's terrible. Um, and the second is <laughs> Life is Beautiful. Um, and and I and I really sort of expected walking into this uh, to feel the similar s things that I felt about Life is Beautiful, where you're setting. And, and to some extent, I do. Um, I think I still feel a bit. I think I heard something like this is the most twee, like Nazi film ever made or something like that. And, you know, um, in, in some aspects, the, I, just the the audacity to do a f comedic film with children that's lighthearted in this setting is 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 a complicated matter so you have to perhaps give credit for for being provocative and trying to to create a story behind that i also know i think taika waititi could not find someone to play the um adolf hitler character so he ended up uh having to do it himself um i was impressed that the fact that um the characters similar to like who, way people handle it i think effectively in in films like The Producers, uh, the Nazi characters are such complete buffoons and um, and and portrayed in a way that 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 allows you to sort of take on the subject matter and sort of understand that this is a story about a young man kind of coming and understanding his own identity and a very very hard landscape um, and a very difficult time. And then as well with the performances um, of Scarlett Johansson, who is really the heroine of the story, a, you know, really interesting uh, character and the, you know, the understanding of where, how and how she navigates that world, um, not, not wanting to be a Nazi, but being, you know, fighting for survival. Um, I thought, I thought those were, those were effective elements to the film. So I have to give it credit in, in that way. Um, I know it was very, very popular. I think at the Toronto Film Festival it won. Um, I think it's up for perhaps even an Oscar contender. Um, I'm not sure it went a hundred percent to me. Like I think there were times where the tone was, 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 was well thought out and the script was interesting and the performances were good. But I think sometimes, um, you know, it, it, it almost made it and, and some of the co comedic moments, but there were times where I felt perhaps I didn't feel comfortable with them. So I think in my case, uh, I was never, this probably speaks more to my sense of humor than anything else. I don't think I, I, I didn't certainly didn't feel uncomfortable with it at any point. I think there are bits that work better than others. Overall, I, I liked the film. I enjoyed it. Um, you know, I think I, I would recommend people go see it. I don't think, I don't think anybody will be offended by it. Um, you know, well, I mean, I say that. I'm sure. I'm sure somebody will be, but I. I don't think it's as prone to offence as the premise's description might imply. Um, the the irony is looking at trailers and the promos for it. It's actually kind of the most notable aspect, which is the bit that doesn't really work for me. I think what works is, as you say, um, this lampooning of the Nazi characters. In that respect, it's not quite as effective as the work of Armando Iannucci, but that's actually kind of what it reminded me of. Yeah. Um, and I think you mentioned to me, separately to that, something about like the death of Stalin and it kind of bearing some similarities to that. And to me, like mine is maybe a slightly more confusing comparison, but it did remind me a little bit of In the Loop and kind of like some of the like bumbling politician characters there. Now, that's not to draw a parallel between the, the real-life instances, of course, but it's the same idea of 
satirising individuals in roles of power by making them out to be idiots, effectively. And I think that that's something which, for me in the film, actually worked really quite well. Um, Sam Rockwell plays kind of like the local Nazi chief i suppose he's also like the head of like the local office of nazis or you know something i can't remember exactly what the role was his his role is quite an interesting one Mm -hmm. um and i think he plays that very well of all the supporting roles sam rockwell's was the most interesting for me and i think all that stuff works quite well and it kind of chimes a little bit with what taika waititi's comedy is before um so in the same way that it that approach to it reminded me of Armando Iannucci's work some of the stuff that he picks up on and chooses to poke fun at reminded me of what we do in the shadows Taika Waititi's comedy is the comedy of the mundane right Mm -hmm. it's taking and stuff that he's done before it's he takes fantastical things and then makes it funny by making it as mundane as possible you know what like if you take these fantastical characters or these fantastical ideas what happens when you give them like just normal bollocks day-to-day stuff right and that's that's the entire premise of what we do in the shadows you know it's vampires flat sharing so in that respect it's still very much within his wheelhouse and there's one scene where honestly god i really just found it hilarious stephen merchant has a cameo as the sort of like the head of a local gestapo unit and he comes in and it's this ridiculous thing where there's eight of them and they all say heil hitler to each other like yeah. every time they go in and out of a room it's it's absurd it's ridiculous and it it, it really works extremely extremely funny because it's taking this horrific thing and it's then applying an absurdity to it and those bit those parts for me worked when taiki waititi stays within what i believe to be his wheelhouse of the comedy of the mundane the bit that it doesn't work for me, or it works far less effectively, is actually, ironically, the headline instance of the imaginary Hitler friend, yeah. right, played by Taika Waititi. And, I mean, don't be wrong, there's the odd mild laugh out of it, but I, I don't really see what he was trying to achieve there. It seems to be, it's a particularly kind of whimsical, irreverent way of delivering exposition as to Jojo's mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, because when Jojo's wrestling with this... Um, this idea of the the Jewish girl who he is, you know, beginning to have sympathy for, and it's kind of like breaking down a lot of like the propaganda he's been fed about Jewish people. The way that they vocalise that in the film is effectively him having conversations with the imaginary Hitler. Now, the imaginary Hitler is not particularly satirising anything about Hitler. There's this one brief moment where he kind of goes into a very Hitler-style. Hitler oratory style, but it's very fleeting. But other than that, I mean, I'm t- I mean, basically, it's, it's it's Taika Waititi with the German accent, you know. And obviously, that's probably a deliberate thing because what's the point in making it similar to actual Hitler? But you take that one step further. What's the point in that character? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with that too. I, I think there's, I think that my question is, and I think this goes back to my comment about life is beautiful. Um, can you make a mundane story in, you know, or a story about like everyday taking the fantastical and making it everyday and mundane in in a topic and a setting in in a story, place that is so rife with confusion and disparity and you know utter you know chaos and 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 I, I i'm not sure that that's even that's really possible i think the death of stalin does a better job with dealing 
with that. Um, I also, there's some of these moments to me that the way that it's filmed, and perhaps that's his style, but it also felt a little bit like Wes Anderson's style for sure. And I think um, if you look at like the Grand Budapest Hotel, there's similar kind of um, ways in which handle this this kind of similar topic. I, I didn't I didn't feel like it it, it matched completely and um, so I didn't that's the parts I didn't feel comfortable with. I also particularly didn't really like the end. I don't know there was this moment and I don't think I'm giving away too much, but there was some sort of like dance moment that felt like super hipster and felt felt like it should have been in some Noah Baumbach Greta Gerwig film you know from 2012 instead of in a you know a film about the Nazis. Yeah, I mean, I think that, and that's the only part where I, I it doesn't. It, I mean, I, th- I think it worked better for me, but it's one of those elements where you, I, I think it get for me anyway. It gets away with it, but it's definitely not. Uh, it's definitely not in the pro column because th- there are elements, particularly there's a, there's a segment early on in the film where it's like the, the Hitler youth are taken out to train in the woods, and yes, at that point, especially the way certain bits are shot, it is a little bit like Moonrise Kingdom. But what if Nazi youth? You know, it's yeah, like, yeah it, it, totally. it doesn't it doesn't quite it doesn't quite work for me. But I think when it sticks to that comedy of the mundane, that's when it hits home. And I and, and I am going to disagree slightly. In that I do think it can be done because other other things have done it, and and in a way. I don't know whether this would have been a reference point for Taika Waititi, but something that would have been a useful reference point would be so it was, I'm thinking of the four series of Blackadder here mm-hmm. in the UK, right? And it's obviously it's set in the First World War, it's set in the trenches, this horrible situation where, you know, many, many people died and, you know, it was just a horrible set of circumstances. But somehow they created an extremely effective comedy out of that. And it's not comedy that just happens to be there. It actually makes comedy out of the scenario in which they find themselves. And I think a lot of the stuff that they deal with in this film in terms of, you know, the types of propaganda that's getting put out and the way that the, you know, the the low-level bumbling Nazis go about their day-to-day, a lot of that is very funny and I think it works very well. It's more just when it it just tries to take that little step into the fantastical and Mm -hmm. the most obvious... The most obvious example of that is imaginary Hitler. But there are a couple of other elements as well. That's when it loses a bit of effectiveness for me. And it also it tries to get a couple of um, emotional moments in. And I think, it, again, I think it largely works. I think it largely gets away with it. But it is a slight tonal shift compared yeah. to, you know, Sam Rockwell bumbling around drunk in the, the local office and, you know, them putting out, you know, ridiculous anti-Jewish propaganda like it's, you know... a information flyer it does clash with that a little bit for me i think it gets away with it i don't think it will with everyone your response to the film is probably going to depend on how much that takes you out of the comedy yeah if you find that too jarring then yeah i can easily see how somebody would react to this kind of going nah this is this is not for me for me it worked um but i think that because it's not blended them maybe as well as it could have that's where if somebody is not going to go with the film that lack that kind of that seam which is very obvious to me that's where where it will fall apart all right um and on that note um you know go see it if you if you like let us know what you think the music's very good i'll say that i'll say that that's unambiguously the music is good but when you're saying that about this film that probably says a lot so (laughs) yeah okay out at the start of the month yep 
So on our next topic, we are going to do what Jim has had several heart attacks uh, about already, um, which is because it's the end of the year, but also the end of the decade, Cinetopia is doing a couple of things. Uh, we're doing a blog on our favorite films of the year, uh, which you'll be able to read shortly. And uh, But right now we're going to do uh, our favorite films of the decade, um, this isn't a list. We like we'll talk about this in a moment, but this is these if are it, recommendations. If it turns into a list, I'm going to walk out. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, we, I mean, sort of the we started thinking about we'll do uh, each of us will pick three or four films and then uh, you know just throw them out there and then maybe because um, I know we all have our own opinions and not all of us have seen the films we've picked individually. So this is basically our recommendations, not just you, the adoring public, but also, for example, me to Jim and Amanda. Yeah, I'd like a, to um, interject on that. Why, why Jim, you hate lists. I also, I, I, I just come to This Way Up. I just come back from This Way Up, um, and uh, which is a film exhibition conference I highly recommend anyone considering going to if they're, into, if they're involved in film exhibition, running community cinemas or running a, you know, a film festival. Um, about the problem with lists and it's because who owns those lists and who is controlling those lists and you know then we have these kind of best lists of all time from different sort of perspectives and we're we're missing out on so much cinema in a lot of ways um, by 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 bringing it down to a cold thing where perhaps you would have never been able to have the opportunity to see a certain film um, and it really, I, I think the idea of a recommendation for me is a, is a good thing because, you know, you might not have seen this film, so we're recommending them. But, Jem, what do you think? I, I, yeah, I mean, basically for me, it comes down to, now, I can be a bit of a miserable git on this, right? I, like, as anybody who knows me, but in terms of, like, giving scores to films, even, like, when I'm reviewing films, I don't like giving them scores. Um, I hate the idea of lists. And the, the reason for it is... Whilst you can engage in a certain amount of objective analysis of a film, and I think if you're reviewing it, then really that's probably what you should do, your reaction in terms of whether you like it or not is ultimately completely subjective. You know, I mean, we've seen this multiple times on even the, the films that we review on the show. So if I turn around and say, oh, these are the top 10 films of the decade, I mean, to who? I mean, me. Me and no one else. I mean, it's not really of, 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 much, of much use. And the reason I get so worked up about it is it kind of creates this idea of this is the popularly accepted canon of films you should see, right? Exactly. So it's and inevitably what ends up happening, you know, whilst, you know, if you, if you go and look at, like, you know, the IMDb Top 20 or something, yeah, there's a whole bunch of really good films there. Yeah, you should, you should probably watch them if you can. But... Ultimately, what it comes down to is these are also good films that everybody also happens to have seen, you know, and it's very rare for big lists like, you know, top 100 films of the decade to be done by one person, right? If they're done by one person, they have the problem I've said. If they're done by multiple people, then, you know, what's the criteria for this? And it just it, it just flares up pointless arguments about what is in it. Oh, this is too high. Oh, this should be below this. And it, it's trying to... It's trying to wrestle some sort of objective ranking out of something where you cannot do that. You just you just can't. Yeah. And yeah. that's why it annoys me so much. So I think we're going to take it like as recommendations. And then I also think the plan is, is maybe for a few interjections, if we agree or disagree, is the, is the four. So I guess, Luca, why don't we start with you? 
Right. So um, I will add to just quickly to what Jim said is that when you're trying to, for me, I I decided to stick it to three. I decided I was not going to put the master on as a fourth film uh, <laughs> because that's a whole other discussion of worth forty minutes about PTA that we could get into. Well, is there a P? Well, I'm waiting to hear because <laughs> I am. You could just say the PTA. Well, actually, yeah. The, the other the films are actually Inherent Vice, Phantom Thread, uh, <laughs> everything. With anything the PTA. Yeah, yeah, you've got two Paul Thomas Anderson films <laughs> when you only pick three. Yeah, I know. You see, we're already arguing about it. No. Okay. <laughs> The, the films I decided to pick, uh, what I was going to say was I decided to go for three. Um, three is a perfect number. And for me, I decided to, uh, also because we were talking about Jojo Rabbit, I decided to pick one very specifically kind of as a response. But also when you're doing three, there is a curatorial element to it. Nevertheless, like even if these are recommendations, you so so I decided to have a bit of a variety. So uh, first up, the earliest one is from 2012, I believe, which is The Act of Killing. Um, oh boy! Which I believe is a documentary game changer. Uh, a lot of people oh agree with goodness. me, but I think Amanda disagrees. Um, I f- just quickly like I think it is as a documentary. It is very much in line with it. You know, I mean, Errol Morris and Herzog were there, and you know, producing it. I guess. Um, or at least involved with the distribution, it it plays with documentary and the idea of how much of the truth is represented. Um, and then also the moral quandary of a filmmaker visiting people that, um, you know, if the Holocaust uh, had happened and the guys who did it got away with it and then he's getting them to recreate their crimes. Um, almost says for their own glorification, but for us it's to show just the depth of um, the lack of morality that these people have, like, uh, you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera, about the human condition. Um, and I, Amanda, what do you, like, what do you, what do you think? Well, I'm not saying that it isn't a documentary changer in any aspect and very provocative in that sense. I do think that um, the fact that, you know, and I highly recommend, like, I, I highly regard Errol Morris and, and Werner Herzog, but the idea that uh, the form of the documentary takes takes precedence over the topic and giving a voice to um, to the perpetrators. I uh, there's a moment in that film where the one of the people who did much of the mass murders um, like literally throw like like starts to heave and and, mm. and throw up, and that's how that film made me feel through like the entire thing. I just wanted to throw up, and I know I realize that's an important aspect that like this but that's, is. But that's 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 I get, good. I right? get that, but I still don't. I still find real. Um, like uh, there's a lot of issues for me with the hubris of a documentary filmmaker to make and change the story in that route and and go forward with that um, and also give voice to 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 those people. I also think that if this was a story about Nazis, that it would never have been able to be made in the same way that it that no, that it was. if if they had gotten away with it, that like that's that's my point is that you know. Because that's the whole thing. It's like the the documentary does, if I remember correctly, it does show that they are these people are held up as heroes on public television in um, in Indonesia. So yeah, no, um, I I, I, like we could go on about probably about it for a really really long time. I think the the thing I would say is that it definitely is not one of my favorite documentaries. I think the fact that we can have a dialogue about Mm. film and documentary and 
where it where it goes right and where it goes wrong from this film is is good for right. is good for film, um, but it certainly um, is 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 an interesting choice. Okay, um, the related to that um, sort of that's act of killing, but like the two that I really sort of have thought about and seen. Um, well, actually. The second one I've seen about five times, and I've only seen the first one once. Uh, so the two films are Son of Saul and uh, Blade Runner 2049. Let's, let's go for a mainstream uh, film. But I think, I think Blade Runner 2049 is, it is one of the highlight sci- science fiction films, films in general. Um, one of the best films that Hollywood has put out, uh, like, in the last few years just on the, on the Blade Runner 2049 thing okay. right? now, now, in short I like the film right I'm not I'm not going to lambast you for picking it I'm curious as to why you chose that over Arrival for instance mm-hmm. which has a very similar mode of st- storytelling it's Denny Villeneuve again yes. and in that case it's also I mean I, I say it's an original film I mean it's based on a short story but obviously that doesn't come out of existing IP what made you pick Blade Runner 2049 over something like that um, I think it um, it's more expansive I think the ideas are um, as broad as they are personal whereas Arrival I think there was something even though obviously there was dealing with you know multinational cooperation in times of crisis it was a very personal story and I love Arrival but Blade Runner did something, uh, 2049, did something interesting, which was, and this has been talked a lot, uh, a lot about, which is um, it tricked you into thinking that the protagonist was the hero. It was the hero's journey. And in many ways it was. He, you know, There's sacrifice at the end of it. He does find his heroism. But it's an understated heroism in the sense that it's, it's passed off to, to someone else. He finds that he's not the chosen one. Um, and on top of that, I think Blade... The love scene in 2049 was... I, that was a moment where I went, oh, Christ, this is the future. You know, it's like it made very accurate and poignant speculations um, that you couldn't look away from. Whereas, you know, Arrival, I love it, but it's... And, and it did have its scope, but I... Particularly because Blade Runner came out, I think, less than 12 months after Arrival. And it did feel like, okay, Denis Villeneuve, I need to make my sci-fi, that's going to make me... A, you know, primer for Blade I, Runner. I, just, I find it interesting. It's just because I love both films, but for me, Arrival is kind of the one that sticks with me a bit more. Mm. I think what I did like about Blade Runner 2049 was the fact that it was another example of how I think one of the best cinematographers, Absolutely. I mean, I mean, probably ever, but I mean, you, you know, certainly like some of the, st- in particular, some of the stuff he's mm-hmm. actually put out in the past decade, Roger Deakins, I mean, it, it really hammers that home. I just, I find it interesting which one you would go for above those two, because just, I feel like one has stuck with me more as mm-hmm. much as I like both. So it's, it's just interesting to hear that. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I, another, well, also I'm a fan of Phil K. Dick and the original, so I could go on about that one forever if anyone wants to have a sci-fi podcast. Um, <laughs> holla. Um, and then, of co- and then, okay, like, you know, I I will preface this by saying, didn't want to chime in. I've, you already know my thoughts on Jojo Rabbit. Like, I haven't seen it, but I went to see Knives Out last week, saw the trailer. I'm very skeptical, considering this is the decade where we've had Son of Saul, uh, a film that Cloud Landsman, you know, a uh, director of the great Showa claimed that, you know, I can't remember his exact quote, but he did suggest that this was the narrative film about the Holocaust that is definitive. That 
for me anyway, resolve the issue of, you know, how to portray this historical moment in a way that's com- actually really ahistorical, that focuses, as Lazo Nemes, the director, said, it's like it focuses in a very Dardenne brother way on the face of the human being that is going through Auschwitz. Um, so for anyone doesn't, you guys, have you, have you seen it? Uh, I haven't, no. I haven't either, actually. It's, it's one of these films that's been on my to-watch list for a while, but I've not got around to um, I, like, I, I've, now, I, I've seen it once, and I remember every detail of it. it was, it's one of those films that you watch. It is hard going, but it is an hour and 40 minutes. It's like you can do it, but you will be out of breath afterwards uh, because it's kind of... It's like what Woody Allen said about throwing the pity in Annie Hall. It's like, yeah, you're meant to feel guilty about it. Um, but it's, yeah, for me, that is the philosophical resolution of, you know, what Hanukkah has said about, you know, the idea of Schindler's List introducing suspense into the Holocaust when mm. the Holocaust is a failure. And that's why I'm angry about Jojo Rabbit before I've even seen yeah. it, is because it does seem like having a story about the Holocaust in that way that's far more flippant, even as a satire, than it should be. Um, and then to have Son of Saul really show us the tragedy of that of the Holocaust, I think that is. Um, now I wonder what Cloud Landman thought of the act of killing. Because speaking of game changing documentaries, show us certainly is that for sure. Um, I, I I think I think he would have liked uh, act of killing, or uh, I think he would have liked. Um, if you're also interested, uh, The Look of Silence, the sort of companion film mm-hmm. that came out, the, uh, I think it's a, it's a more quiet affair, literally, The Look of Silence. Uh, for me, the best documentary of this decade um, goes, well, there's two, actually, and two of my favorites are documentaries, Go Figure, um, is The Stories We Tell, which was uh, written and directed by Sarah Pauly. And um, in, and I, I think it plays in a very similar way that um, it's a different story. It's a story about her personal life and her sort of reveal, it it comes through um, interviews and through her own investigation of her family that she is um, the daughter of, her her mom had an extramarital affair and she's the daughter of of another person, um, another father. And um, ultimately the way that it deals with history and memory and, you know, archive footage and, you know, the family relationships and and those over time, um, to me that, is far more of a game changer too than the act of killing, but also um, we hate lists, but it has been written up as one of the top 10 Canadian (laughs) films of all time. Um, But yeah, no, it's really, really, I mean, I just remember just crying so much in that film and it it really stands out to me as one of my most favorite documentaries I've seen in a a really long time. And quite, that was a, a while ago because it was, it was done in 2012. And 2012 must have been a good, really good year for me yeah. because uh, my other s- film that I would like to um, mention is Francis Ha, which um, Noah Baumbach, Greta Gerwig kind of duo, co-written by Greta Gerwig. I think it brings it. What Greta did is bring some whimsy, if you will, to Noah Baumbach, who, like, I think a lot of people saw the squid whale and thought that he was the most depressing person on the planet. And the idea of divorce, obviously, he has become kind of, now that we talked about marriage story, the 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 director known for the divorce story. Um, but Francis Ha is, apart from its homage to Francois Truffaut and I mean when you said I think Luca you said that the cinematography was one of his best in in Marriage Story I think this is his best 
uh, film in terms of cinematography. Yeah, I'd agree. When we were talking about um, Marriage Story, and this is not to disagree with Locale, I think it, I think Marriage Story is a really great looking film, but Francis Ha is the one that sticks in my head because, like, one, I think it, it's kind of a delightful film anyway, but I was really taken with the look of it. It's it, it to, to me, it was quite for a film of its time. I mean, obviously, like there are films that have done that sort of look before, but. To me, that that's his best looking film for me. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, it's the, all this homage to French New Wave, which I c- couldn't help but love. Um, but also, again, the story of an, a different part of an artist's like like career and New York. I mean, again, the setting of New York and trying to trying to to take a relationship, a different kind of relationship, a best friend, and navigate that through time, navigate that through. I mean, it really really spoke to me at the time it still really speaks to me i shared um most of my time in new york with a best friend and we went different paths and came back together and and vice versa and how much and how important friendship is um you know apart from just relationships so big 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 um sell for me and on one of my favorites um and finally, I couldn't go without saying, uh, which you know I've heard, I've talked about much, and we've shown at different cenotopias, but Agnes Varda's Faces Places. Um, there's just not, there's not another film out there that doesn't just uh, touch my heart so much. And um, for that to be kind of not her final, but um, one of um, her last films um, in a career that was just so incredible um and and the the amount of humor and beauty and um of and the story and the collaboration with jr who is now one of my most favorite artists just for his sense of humor and his you know his his like inherent kindness in the world um i just i just i I couldn't say more wonderful things about it I, from the perspective of somebody who is less familiar with Agnes Varda, as, as you know, because we reviewed her her last film on the show, and I, I wasn't wholly sold on it, but one of the things that I appreciate that film for, and also Faces Places when it came out, is like, I, I'm not going to lie, I wasn't, I wasn't as aware of Agnes Varda as perhaps I should have been, and off the back of that, I've gone back and I've revisited a lot of her filmography, and it, it, like, it's just some wonderful filmmaking, absolutely wonderful filmmaking. So regardless of what you think of faces places which is which is good but the very fact that it she continued to make films which would then introduce her to new generations of cinema goers i think yeah. is a wonderful thing because the, the, the films that i've gone and watched off the back of being aware of that i wouldn't replace them the, the wonderful wonderful filmmaking i cried as many times uh well i cried near the end but you know particularly some of those b sequences I cried as well, knowing, realizing that Godard is still an epic asshole. I know, I know. It really turned uh, turned my whole life around. At least I can still love Truffaut for everything that he was, and and uh, and, and mourn mourn him not being the one who, who's who's around still to this day, especially with Francis Ha. I I'd like to give my fourth to um, Under the Skin. Um, love it. And uh, it's funny because that. Um, 
I when I saw it, I, I saw it at Nighthawk in, in Brooklyn, and it was really scary. But I also warn anyone who wants to go to Nighthawk that I found a roach like five minutes before, um, like on my table right before watching this, and then the lights went down, and I was like <laughs> freaked out. And somehow I've ended up in Scotland um, despite this film, um, perhaps because of this film. But you know, it really didn't didn't you know it was it, it made Scotland kind of this really crazy strange place. Yeah, that film did seem to suggest that uh, Glasgow was as scary as deepest space. Um, <laughs> Maybe that's why I ended up in Edinburgh. Yeah. <laughs> but, but no, really incredible film that just uh, blew me away. I didn't even know what to expect. And also, of course, Scarlett Johansson shows her versatility there as well. Yeah, I'm pleased you've picked Under the Skin, actually, because it's one of the one. So I, I think as we've established, it gives me palpitations just thinking about needing to pick, like, you know, a handful of films from the decade. But Under the Skin is one of the ones that I've not picked, but I came very close to picking. So I'm very glad you've you've said something about it, because I, I, at the time I watched it, I was blown away by it. I really think it's superb. I, you know, the score from Michael Levy, we spoke about yeah. it briefly when we were reviewing Monos, like... I think it, it captures like so many things and for, for me the thing that actually stays with me about Underskin is the score like it, to me in terms of kind of a a new sound for um, right. film soundtracks to me Michael Levy is the person who comes to mind like you've got your kind of established canon your Hans Zimmer's your John Williams's your all the rest of it but the um, the the one which kind of like came into being in this decade I would think I can think of two and one of my picks actually kind of covers it but Michael Levy is the other one so I'm very pleased you've picked that yeah yeah and, and how about you Jim right so here we go right <laughs> we see, right right so the reason the this gives the reason the reason that. this gives me so, so much of a heart attack is what kind of like I find it hard enough to pick films for like you know my favorite films of the year what would I recommend people see from the past year so you make a decade it's just like 10 more films to worry about forgetting about right however I've gone with um, I've gone with three. Right? I can throw in a fourth if we want, but the first one is actually probably a slightly controversial one. The part of the reason I've agonised over recommending this is it it's it's super recency, right? If you want something to kind of sit for a while and determine whether you really think it's as good as you think it is, then you need a long time. And it's no coincidence that the other two films I'm going to mention are from 2011, right? So I'm going back a while, but the other one I'm picking. We've spoken about the show, so I'm not going to go on about it at length again, is The Irishman. Now, it maybe sounds a little bit early to be saying this, but really I was blown away by it. And it captures to me so much about the way film is going in this century. The fact that it is three and a half hours long and it's on Netflix and Scorsese basically couldn't get it made. Like, you know, Paramount were meant to be doing it and they dropped out and it's now got this life on Netflix and it's opened up this debate about how it should be watched and everything. So in and of itself, I think it's a wonderful film. Um, I really think it's fantastic. But I think also the context in which it's come about makes it an important one to see just because it it kind of gets you thinking about not to open up this like uh, Scorsese versus Marvel thing that's been kicking around, but what is cinema, right? Is it inherently tied to the environment in which you watch it? Or is it an approach? Is it a formal thing? Can we define it? And if so, what are they and who is the, the guardian of that? So I think the context in which The Irishman has been released also kind of captures a lot about cinema in this century what this is decade. your thought is cinema of how you watch it or is it, is it to me it's just, it's about telling the story with the moving image yes 
But it, the, the question is, like, how does it differ today? Because I've had arguments with people where they try to claim that effectively The Irishman is a television movie, which I think is absurd. Um, so for me, I would agree. It's to do with the storytelling and it's to do with the way you structure that story. And that, that for me, is why this is not a small screen in the traditional sense of it. But this is where I think this is the best example of why we kind of need to have this discussion because it, historically it's been very easy to define movies and cinema versus television and television movies because it was literally is it in a theater or not mm -hmm. right the very fact that netflix amazon are producing their own films and they're kind of balancing theatrical distribution with streaming in some cases or not uh, and then you've got companies in the UK like Curzon who are doing day-and-date releasing, so something is available right at the same time as it's in theatres. It's it's an interesting discussion to have, and I'm very firmly of the opinion that how cinematic something is and whether it is cinema is not tied to the medium in which you watch it. And the reason I say that is because there are many, many films that I think are wonderful that I've never seen on a big screen. And, and I don't think they're made any less cinematic by the fact that I've not seen it. If I could see them on a cinema screen, I absolutely would. But I don't feel like it's tied into what its primary release mechanism is. And I think this film, as well as being wonderful in my opinion, is the kind of the, the hottest bed of debate where this has popped up. Mm, okay. Um, and I know we've talked about it many much to, on this on the show as well, and why it's such a good film as well. So, what's your others then? So the other ones, um, the second one I'm going to go for is we need to talk about Kevin, uh, directed by Lynn Ramsey. So, Lynn Ramsey to me is one of the most effective and skilled directors working today. Agreed. Right now. I, you could make a case, and I'm sure many would, for if I was going to pick a Lynn Ramsey film, substituting out this for You Were Never Really Here, which was another absolutely superb film. Um, to me, the reason I'm going for We Need to Talk About Kevin is it's it's just so bold. Now, You Were Never Really Here obviously is, but in the case of We Need to Talk About Kevin, I feel like it's blending more things together that make it interesting like her use of color and the foreshadowing i think is incredible um i when i first saw it in 2011 i maybe actually thought it was a little bit overwrought in that regard but i, I reconsidered that opinion very quickly i think tilda swinton is superb and i think it captures probably what for me anyway is probably her best performance in this decade and then there's various other things going on and in the particular case of Lynn Ramsey, I find her a very interesting filmmaker because she she's a female filmmaker, and this is the best example of her dealing with some aspects of this are very feminine themes, but they're not dealt with in a feminine way, right? It's not it's not a it's not a gendered approach to film in the way that you know sometimes these things can be, and it blends that with kind of issues around. Um, American society and kind of, you know, are there in terms of weapons and things like that. It also, it's a brilliant set of performances and I don't think, uh, I don't think Ezra Miller has topped it since for me. I mean, he's been in quite a lot of good films. The Flash? Come on. <laughs> yeah, well, um, let's just say Justice League is not making it into this list. Um, 
but it deals with so many things and it blends them together fantastically. I think it's also interesting as a literary adaptation because, of course, it's based on a book and the, the structure of the book is fundamentally, fundamentally different to what ends up in the film. And that's actually the case for you whenever we're really here as well. So like, it, it, it really it gets across her approach to film. It really features some of the best performances of the cast in there. I mean, like, it's, it's wild to think that this has John C. Riley in it. Mm. I mean, like, he plays the father in it, and it's a very, it's a very straight role. But the performances she's got, the the visuals of it, the adaptation, it does so many things brilliantly. That's basically why I've picked it. I, th- I think I completely agree. I think um, that film that you were never really here is interesting. Um, Whilst Ratcatcher and Marvin Keller are really interesting films, um, when you look at the production history of, uh, we need to talk about Kevin. Like she was meant to make Lovely Bones, then I, like after Kevin, she was meant to make what she described as Moby Dick in space, um, and like I would agree that that film Kevin really represents someone that's now making American movies, at least feature length uh, American movies, but has not hasn't lost any sense of her own artistic voice and even has d- developed it like you know it, into something f- even more poignant and hard hitting um over her career yeah and i it, it, even things like the use of sound as well i mean like i think in terms of the reaction to the film w- you were never really here i felt like i was having an anxiety attack for two yeah. straight hours but the the seeds of that as far as i'm concerned in terms of her use of sound it starts and we need to talk about Kevin. You can very much see a, a con, you know a consistency of tone across them. And for me, for me, it's maybe a slightly more accessible story than you were never really here. And I think that's maybe why it gets in um, ahead of that. As I say, so many things come together. Like all those themes I spoke about, even the idea of nature versus nurture, to me, it really is one of one of the best films I've seen in recent years. And I think if somebody hasn't seen it, they should absolutely check it out. Particularly if they've seen other Lynn Ramsey films that be keen. That goes for whether we're talking about her most recent, You Were Never Really Here, or even if you go back to her earlier films. And I think the most the, the one that I would jump upon would probably be Ratcatcher, right? And it's a different. It, it's and different. Her short films as well are really good, like Gasman and stuff. Well, like this that. is the thing. I, I, I honestly, I haven't seen every Lynn Ramsey film, but, and I haven't seen any of her shorts actually. But she is yet to make a film that I don't think is like good. Not even okay, good. And if you're looking for a way into Lynn Ramsey, I actually think if you've not seen any Lynn Ramsey films, I actually think we need to talk about Kevin would be a good one to start with because it's it, it's it's a very accessible modern film. It's less kind of like steeped it like you know like Ratcatcher. You know, it's very basic kind of like an urban decay type thing. But we need to talk about Kevin. It has that kind of kernel of accessibility. It's a very easy story to get into, but then the way she approaches it and the themes that she deals with across that film, brilliant. The last one, right, and actually, I don't think it is 2011, I think it's actually earlier, and I've gone for it for a slightly different reason. So I've wrestled with various things, right? So we've got the honourable mention for uh, Under the Skin. I could have put Moonlight or Get Out in here or other ones that I would have considered putting in. The one I've actually gone for is The Social Network. Now, the reason I've chosen The Social Network is, one, I'm a big fan of David Fincher's work, but also that is a film which is a curious one in that it's very easy to forget that that was made only five years after Facebook had become a thing, right? And it would have entered production earlier than that, obviously, and it was based on a book which was written even earlier than that. 
and if anything the the way it has presented its real life characters and the tone that it's gone for with it has aged beautifully um it, it's one of these rare things where it's depicting a particular set of real events in someone's life and it's actually got better it's not aged it has got more prescient and it has got more relevant than i think it even was when it came out the other reason i've chosen it is also for uh more stylistic reasons i think it was the first film i can remember where it had a soundtrack by trent reznor and atticus ross and along with michael levy who we spoke about for under the skin her soundtracks are that another the sort of like intensely modern sounding uh, film soundtracks i would choose the collaborations that those two have done we've reviewed a few of them on the show like mid 90s was one where the, you know the film itself is is fine I, I did it was never in any danger of making this list but the soundtrack is superb and it's it, it comes from those two so there's various reasons for picking it from a from a story standpoint performance standpoint the fact that david fincher is a fantastic filmmaker but also the soundtrack to me really stands out i would i would even add on a stylist i if i was to pick a Fincher of this decade, I, I, I'm, you know, conflicted between that or Gone Girl, which are his two most, you know, as a contemporary, great contemporary filmmaker dealing with contemporary issues, two really great films of their time. Um, but I would say with Social Network as well, like add to add your you know, stylistic bits of the film, that film made people working on laptops and computers really interesting, mainly because of the Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross soundtrack. And it showed that you don't have to have like, you know, graphic effects where it's like you know there's a pop-up with a message it's like you just have a really obsessed geek um with a nine inch nail soundtrack like you know typing and like it works the, the other thing that i think is worth pointing out for for this film um and i'm going to include the irishman in it as well is i think if you take them together part of the reason i've picked those two it also kind of goes to show how far special effects have come mm. in this decade um in particular you know because the irishman has all the de-aging techniques and well we, we've spoken about that in the review already so i'm not going to go on about it because we've we've covered it but the fact that you've even got army hammer you know you've got right. two of him in the social network and i remember watching that in 2010 and just thinking they'd cast identical Same, twins yeah. and it really kind of goes to show how you know because people complain about cgi and effects being poor but in reality, it's just you now notice the poor CGI. When you don't notice it, um, it's incredibly effective. And I think, that, and David Fincher is one of these guys who has done that to fantastic effect. You know, I mean, there's whole segments and backdrops and objects in his films that are effects generated and you don't realize. So actually, The Social Network is quite a good example of that as well. I've primarily chosen it for soundtrack reasons and the prescience and continuing relevance of its story but there's a lot going on in that film uh which as i say captures a lot of what has been good about film in this decade and i would even recommend check out his dvd commentaries particularly on the social network they're really good if you're well, want to be a filmmaker or something yeah. there you go there you go right, so anyway i've said my bit paul what about you uh, blame me. Last past decade. Well, I, I just watched The Irishman, actually. So, yeah, that would, that's a bit of a stand-up. Yes, one. I'm not the only one who's picking it. Yeah, no, it was, it was very good. Uh, I mean, it's like a throwback to, you know, it's like Scorsese getting the gang together again for one last throw on the way to the graveyard. Um, but, <laughs> but uh, um, so I think The Irishman, um, there's a lot of really great, um, I've seen a lot of films. Uh, I've got a daughter, so I've been watching quite a lot of kids' films or younger person's films. Uh, Up, I think, is terrific, uh, fantastic. 
Um, I would say those two, yeah, in the last, well, nine years, yeah. Up is an interesting choice. It's not something that would have popped up for me, but in terms of, like, animated films, I yeah. think that would definitely be up there for me in terms of, yeah. if I was picking from that particular category. It's quite heartrending, you know, there's a little fat kid and the older guy, and they go off in a balloon. It's, it's, it's kind of, has a bit of Wizard of Oz about it, which I, I really likes, and uh, just the relationship between the two of them is quite heartrending and, and um, just, just, just a lovely, charming film, really. Well, that's a wrap for this month's edition of Cinetopia. We'll be back in January with uh, the usual mix of interviews and reviews and chat. Uh, in the meantime, I hope you have a nice festive season and holidays. Uh, thanks to everyone for listening and thanks for the team. So it's Amanda Rogers, Luca Lucas, Jim Ross and myself, Paul Bruce. And uh, goodbye for now. It's what it is.